We're, we're wrapping up this morning our study of the book of Numbers, and uh, we're going to do so by reading uh, just sort of broad brushstrokes, uh, getting a feel for Numbers chapter 33. So I'd like to ask if you would take uh, your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is printed for you uh, in the worship guide, and uh, I'd like to read for us. From Numbers 33, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip to the end of the chapter and read the last uh, several verses, verses 50 through 56. We won't read the chapter in its entirety, but I'll be making reference to it uh, in the course of the sermon. So uh, if you have a Bible with you, it really would be helpful if you had it open uh, and kept it open in front of you throughout throughout our time. So let's pray, and then we'll uh, read God's Word. Lord, we... Thank you that you've given us your word, that what you have done throughout history through many different authors uh, over the course of many centuries is that you have, by the Holy Spirit, given to us the reliable, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. That what we hold in our hands, that what we have in our homes, most of us, many copies of it is uh, to be greatly uh, treasured and prized. We thank you that you've spoken to us reliably, and we pray that you would now give us ears to hear and make our hearts ready to receive your word. Lord, we pray that, um, as many have said in the past, that your word this morning would be like your chariot that you ride on into our hearts and lives that you come into our lives, that you would have your way with us, that you would knock down uh, idols that we have set up, perhaps, in our hearts, that you would come in your, your power and grace and remove any obstructions, that if our hearts have become hardened or cold, calloused, if our minds have become weary or tired or indifferent, that you would come and that you would overpower us in your grace so that we would live in the hope that belongs to those whose trust is in Christ. Lord, fix our eyes on him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give uh, our attention here to God's word. Numbers chapter 33. Again, we'll look at the first two verses and then uh, the last few verses. This is the word of God. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. And then from verse 50, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. 
Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. This is God's word. In uh, June of 1994, uh, graduated from University of Georgia, as a lot of people have just done, and within a few days set out on a two-and-a-half-week trip uh, with a good friend of mine. We were driving from Atlanta. We drove to West Tennessee, left my car, and borrowed my uncle's Jeep and drove to California and spent two-and-a-half weeks on the road. Now, this was course, in the, the days before iPhones and Google Maps and so forth. So I remember that spring semester uh, ordering maps from AAA and spending time that spring with a highlighter and all these maps spread out over the table, charting out our course. Where would we go uh, in the limited time we had available? Where would, what would we skip uh, and have to leave unseen? How long would we stay in a certain place? Where would we camp? Where would we find a hotel and so forth? And then within a few days of graduation, off we went on our trip. And one of, the, one of the thoughts I've had in hindsight, one of the things I wish I had done is I wish I had kept some kind of travel journal. Uh, I wish I had kept notes each day of how far we traveled, uh, where we stopped, what we did, where we ate, things that we experienced that were frightening or that were funny, uh, and so forth, and kept a log of our trip along the way. And I think... I was thinking about that this week, and I think it was probably a great blessing to my family that I did not keep such a journal, because I'm sure I would have pulled it out and read large sections of it to them over the years to their great uh, misery, But because they weren't there, right? They weren't there. They didn't experience those things along the way. However, if my friend and I were to get back in touch with one another, spend some time together, and work through that, that journal, that travel log, it would be a very different experience, wouldn't it? It would evoke all sorts of memories uh, of, that, of those travels together. Place names would, would sort of be like a, like, a, like a desktop icon, and you click on it, all this significance emerges. Well, that's very similar to what we find uh, in Numbers 33, which we come to this morning. As I said, this is our, our final sermon from our study of this book, and I, I think this chapter actually provides a great summary uh, of everything we've been seeing in the book so far. Now, as I said, we, we didn't read the entirety of the book this morning. But what you find from verse 3 up through verse 49 is a detailed, not exhaustive, but a detailed list of a number of places that they traveled along the way from Egypt, where they were in captivity, to the borders of Canaan, where they now sit encamped, ready to cross over uh, into the promised land. Now, at first glance, if we were to read through this entire chapter, at first glance it would seem like a, an unlikely place to turn uh, in our study of this book, an unlikely place to focus our attention. As we talk about the wilderness wanderings of God's people, you might read this chapter and feel like this is sort of a wilderness wandering, trying to figure out these names and, and places where they've traveled. But for the people who lived through these adventures, who lived through the travels that are, that are listed here, 
Many of these names here would have evoked very powerful memories of their 40 years in the wilderness along the way. Because Numbers 33 is not just a random collection of place names, nor, as I said, is it an exhaustive list. But what we find in this chapter is a selective list that's intended to shape Israel's perspective on her wilderness journey as a whole. Now think about it this way. What are the things, as we've worked our way through this book over the, next, the, the last number of weeks, what are some of the key ways in which Israel has struggled in the wilderness. I think we could really distill them into four categories. They've, one, they've forgotten who God is. They've repeatedly forgotten the character of God. They've also forgotten their own identity as his people. They have forgotten the great works that God has done before them, uh, before for them. And then all of that really has, has led them to serially miscalculate their circumstances, misinterpret their lives. And I think if you think about your life, if we consider our life as the church of the Lord Jesus, we find those four struggles that still remain for us. That so many different turns, we, we lose sight of who God is. Now, when we say forget, we don't necessarily forget some, a set of propositions that we once knew but we lose sight. It recedes in our, in our consciousness, in our memory. We lose sight of the greatness of God. We lose sight of his covenant promises, his faithfulness. We lose sight of the fact that he doesn't change. We lose sight of all that he has done for us in Christ. We lose sight of our identity in Christ. And so what happens? We begin to misinterpret our circumstances, don't we? We look at things in our lives, whether they be hard things or, or wonderful blessings, And we misinterpret what we see going on around us. In other words, we live by sight when we should live by faith. So I think that a passage like this can really speak to us today because our experience as we journey through life toward our heavenly home is in many ways very similar to the the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. And I think this passage, this text speaks to us primarily in two ways. And this will be the thrust of what I want us to see together today. First is this. It holds out to us an assurance and examples of the presence of God with us in the wilderness. Remember, we've talked about this theme of wilderness as a biblical theme that not only captures Israel's history in between Egypt and Canaan, but it captures in many ways the experience of the Christian. What does it mean to belong to Christ? It means that you really are his and he's yours and in him you have all the blessings of salvation. Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians and says that if you're a Christian, it means that you are raised with Christ, that you are seated with him in the heavenly places, and that you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. But yet, in their case, they're also still in Ephesus. You're still in Athens. There's an in-betweenness to your experience as a Christian. And God speaks into that in His Word. And so, firstly, this text calls us to remember the presence of God with us in the wilderness. And secondly, it holds out to us the promise of the grace of God to us in the wilderness. And it does that in a couple of ways. By pressing home again your need for His grace... And then assuring you of the certain hope of his grace as you, as you look to him in faith. So those two things, the presence of God in the wilderness and the grace of God in the wilderness. We see those two things here in this chapter. So let's, 
let's think for a moment about the presence of God in the wilderness. You know, when life doesn't go as you expect it to, when things don't go as you want them to in your life, when hardship comes, uh, we're very prone to begin to think and live as if God were not present with us. Don't you find that to be true with your own life? You begin to live functionally as if God were not present with you in the midst of the wilderness. And often that's because our expectations of the Christian life are way off. Many times we don't expect suffering. We're, we're surprised by trials as if some, some strange thing were happening to us. Essentially, we forget that God is still with us every step of the way on our journey through the wilderness. And we forget this, I think, because we lose sight of our pilgrim identity. We lose sight of the fact that there's still a lot of journey left in front of us as God's people. And we can lose heart. So I think, first of all, if we're to appreciate the presence of God with us in the wilderness, we have to recognize as I said a moment ago, the in-betweenness of our experience as Christians. We have to remember our pilgrim identity. Now, if you have your Bible open, you could glance at Numbers 33, and you could look through this chapter and find that there's a recurring phrase. In fact, 42 times through this chapter, there's a phrase that, that recurs, and it's this phrase, and they set out. Over and over and over again, we find it in verse 5. The people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkoth. Verse 9, they set out from Marah and came to Elam. Verse 10, they set out from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. Verse, verse 14, they set out from Alush and camped at Rephidim and so on and so forth. Forty-two times and they set out. What is this teaching us the, the repetition of this passage is driving home to us repeatedly, time after time after time, these are a pilgrim people. These are a people on the move. These are a people who have not yet arrived where God is in the end going to take them. Their lives are marked by being in the wilderness. In fact, that's the title of the book in the Hebrew Bible, not numbers, but in the wilderness. It's how the book begins. It's the first words of the book. And their, their lives were marked by this identity. So what's the point? The point is Numbers 33 is calling you as God's people to remember your pilgrim identity in this world, that this world is not your home, that this world is not the final place where God is taking you, that there's an in-betweenness to your experience as a Christian. And you feel that longing in yourself as a Christian all the time. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you still have that longing in yourself that you haven't yet come to terms with until you've come to Jesus Christ in faith. But we were not made simply for this world. We were made for glory. And to be a Christian is to remember this in-betweenness of our lives. Now, what happens if we forget that? I think what happens is largely two things. We become complacent or we become worldly. See, how that, how that works is if you lose sight of your pilgrim identity, you lose sight of the fact that you are in Christ already a partaker of the kingdom of God, but yet you're still awaiting its final coming. When you forget that, you can become complacent. You can become spiritually dull and lazy. You can coast. You lose your vitality. You lose your spiritual strength and, and zeal. 
Another thing that can happen when you forget your pilgrim identity is you become worldly. What do I mean by that? You become increasingly satisfied with the pleasures and comforts that this world can offer. Because if you don't sense your pilgrim identity, then you know what happens? Your thirst for Christ diminishes. And you become to settle for things in this world that were never intended to satisfy you, rather than drinking from the wells of living water that are ours in Christ. I wonder if you're able to see this morning some of those tendencies in yourself, tendencies to complacency, to coasting spiritually, tendencies to worldliness, to finding your heart, your affections wrap around, your fingers begin to wrap around the things of this world and grip them too tightly as if they could satisfy And what I'm proposing to you this morning from this text is that it's precisely remembering your pilgrim identity in this world that will release your your idolatrous grip on the things of this world and that will also drive you in spiritual earnestness and zeal for the Lord because you realize in the wilderness your need of Him. You will not remember or or believe the presence of God with you in the wilderness if you forget your pilgrim identity. And so Numbers 33 calls us to that. But it also secondly reminds us that in the wilderness, in that in-betweenness, God never, never leaves his people. That's such a fundamental truth, isn't it? That God is with you in the wilderness. That if you, through Jesus, are a child of God, God says to you over and over, and he has to keep saying it, and you have to keep hearing it because we're so quick to forget it. Whatever your experience is, whatever you encounter, whatever comes into your life, whatever hardship, whatever affliction, whatever confuses you and perplexes you and causes fear to well up in your heart, God speaks constantly to you as his child and says, I am with you and I will not leave you. I will never forsake you. And what God pledged when he said that to Abraham, God has sealed in the death of his own son and has put his own word over the cross and has said, if I have given my son for you, what do you think I will withhold God is present with you in the wilderness. And we've seen that throughout the book of Numbers. In the tabernacle, God is present with his people. In the cloud, in the fire, in the rock as he brings life-giving water to them, God, every point along the way, is with them, lovingly redeeming them. And this is precisely the reminder that we get in Exodus 33, uh, Numbers 33. rather. In fact, there are a couple of places along the way, these names which would have immediately triggered Reminders of God's faithful presence with them. For one, Egypt. They set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. A reminder of God's presence. They were enslaved in Egypt, feeling as if they were forgotten. Their cries go up to the Lord. Is the Lord hearing us? Will he answer? Does he know? Does he care? The Lord comes in his power. The Lord is faithfully present with them. He delivers them. It goes on to mention that they set out and they camped in the wilderness of Sinai. That's very significant. God is, through Moses, reminding the people of Israel, I gathered you into my presence. I met with you on this mountain. And for a year I spoke my law and my word to Moses and he delivered it to you. And I 
put you in camps and I gathered you into my, my family and I sent you out on this mission that I'm going to go on, on with you. God's presence with his people in the wilderness. And why is it crucial to emphasize this? Here's why. Because it's your tendency and it's mine. When hardship comes to forget the goodness and the presence of God in our lives. To doubt him, not to take him at his word, but to doubt him. And so Numbers 33 says, in the wilderness experience of the Christian life, in the in-betweenness of your experience as Christians, don't forget that God is with you, leading you faithfully, guiding you, loving you, caring for you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you struggle to believe that during the week? Are there seasons of life where you, you grasp at that and it seems as if you can't get your fingers around that truth? But yet by faith you continue to take God at his word and trust him. That's precisely what he's calling you to. That in all of the changing circumstances of your life, you do not lean on your perceptions. You do not lean on your feelings. But you lean into the unchanging character of God. You lean into his unchanging promises. A friend of mine reminded me this morning of a great quote Uh, from Samuel Rutherford, a pastor from long ago, uh, a Scottish minister uh, from long ago, who said this, Christ chargeth me to believe his daylight at midnight. You see what that means? Christ chargeth me to believe his daylight at midnight. When it's dark, when you can't see what's ahead, when you're struggling to make sense of what's happening in your life, when you can't see or feel God at work, what does Christ charge you to do? Believe his daylight. Believe that he has risen from the dead for you. Believe that he is present with you in the midst of your your wilderness journeys. Take him at his word. Trust his promises. Open your heart and faith to him and receive from him the hope that comes to you through Christ and resist those doubts, resist those fears and those wanderings of your heart away from him. And so Numbers 33 presses home to us, first of all, the presence of God, the faithful presence of God with his people in the wilderness. Secondly, It presses home to us and calls us to remember his grace to us in the wilderness. And it does that in a very interesting way because there's another category of place names that we read in Numbers 33. In in verses 8 and 9, we read about Mara and Elam. Mara is where the people of God come in the wilderness and they complain because there's no good water to drink. It's bitter And yet God turns it and makes it sweet for them to drink and then leads them to Elam, which is an oasis in the wilderness where there are palm trees and fresh springs of water to feed them, to to give them drink, to give them shade. He goes on to mention in verse 11, the desert of sin. Verse 14, Rephidim. Uh, Verse 34, he mentions a, a place with a very strange name. Translated means graves of craving. And then he goes on and mentions Kadesh. All of these places, here's the point. There are a number of places mentioned in this chapter where there was serious sin on the part of Israel. And I think it's very interesting. God doesn't elaborate. 
He doesn't remind them here in this passage of what they did wrong in those places. He simply mentions the names of these places where they rebelled, where they quarreled, where they argued, where they doubted, where they sinned against God. And yet what does God emphasize here in this passage? It's really His grace to them in bearing with them and leading them on. But I think there are two things that come out of this for us as we think about this this record of their journey through the wilderness. First, it presses home your need for the grace of God each day. If we're honest, we'll see that our lives are full of evidence for the cleansing, forgiving, restoring, redeeming grace of God in Jesus Christ. Is that not true? You begin to reflect upon your life and without becoming horribly introspective, I I hope, but recognize, Lord, how full my life has been of things that I wish were not there and how much more fruit I wish was there that that hasn't been. And and I've not been for you the kind of person I want to be. I've, I've missed so many opportunities. I've sinned against you in so many ways. And we become very deeply aware of our need for the grace of God each day. And there's certainly an appropriate call for vigilance and watchfulness and humility and repentance and and guarding against those sins that lead us from the Lord. But Numbers Numbers 33 also speaks peace to us, I think. Because again, though God mentions these places, He doesn't bring His people back and, and put their noses in their sin, but rather indicates how he's been patiently leading them along, forgiving them, pardoning them. And and so Numbers 33 speaks peace to us by pointing us to God's grace and mercy. He has washed away our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ so that just as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. If you're in Christ this morning, what matters most to God is not the sinner you once were, but the washed, justified, sanctified person you now are and will be in Christ Jesus. And it's believing the truth of that gracious promise every day that will allow you, on the one hand, not to excuse your sin or minimize it, and on the other hand, also not to wallow in it. It will keep you from being presumptuous, but it will also keep you from morbid introspection. Because you see how God has dealt with you and your sin. So what we're seeing in Numbers 33 is just these two things. These two great realities. That God is present with his people in the wilderness. That he is gracious to us. That his gracious purposes for you cannot fail. That he's leading you on to your home in glory. But the way I want to capture all of this is very simply like this. And it's to say that the book of Numbers... And this is true for the whole Bible. The book of Numbers is really about God. Now, that's a terribly obvious thing to say, I think. But the book of Numbers is about God. Your life is about God for that matter. For that matter, the whole world is about God. Now, that's an obvious thing to say, but why do we need to say that? I think we do need to say that. Because the tendency for you and for me is to make 
everything about you or about me. Think of some examples. This is what happened with Israel in the wilderness, isn't it? God, we're hungry. God, we're thirsty. God, we don't like this food. God, why have you brought us out here? God, what are you doing to us? God, how could you do this to us? What's the common theme there? Us, me. Why have you done this to me, Lord? This preoccupation with myself, with my circumstances, with my life, with my struggles, with my sorrows, with my hardships, with the wrongs of others against me, is a vain preoccupation with self. And this book, written to people with that disorder, is about God. And that's profoundly important. Because we're so preoccupied with the circumstances of our life that what happens? We lose sight of the one thing that's actually worth living for, which is the eternal glory of the infinitely wise and gracious God who has made us and who in Christ has recreated us. The one thing that can sustain you, the one thing that was ever meant to hold your weight becomes less important to you than you becomes less important to me than me. And God gives them this book. He works in these ways in their life. He's given us this book to say, look at me. Look at me. It's like a child who's too afraid to jump from the edge of the pool into the water and her father or her mother stands pleadingly in the water saying, look at me, I'll catch you. Stop being so concerned with yourself and your fears and your weaknesses. Forget that. The point is, I've come for you. And so this book is about God. And we need to get out of ourselves more. And we need to carry more of God around with us. He needs to be more weighty in our lives. I think this may upset some of you perhaps, but... God's great mission in this world is not to make your life work better. And very often that's how we treat God. God's great mission in this world is not to make our lives work better. God's great mission in this world is to bring you into loving submission and joyful communion with Him. He wants, because he's jealous for his own glory and he's jealous for the good of his people, he wants every beat of your heart to be for him. He wants all of your affection to be laid upon him and and attached to him. He wants you to be his own treasured possession and he's jealous and that means he loves you enough to frustrate your plans for your life. That's painful, friends. And we interpret it as if God doesn't love me. God is not present. God has abandoned me. God loves you so much that he will pursue you and will wound you in order to give you life. He loves you so much that he won't let you live for your own little agenda. He loves you so much that he will will move your plans out of the way, perhaps blow them out in order to do something better in your life. But often we don't trust him to do that, do we? 
And the reason we don't trust him to do that is because we don't see who he is. We forget what he's like. And so the book of Numbers, as we've been going through it for these last many weeks, gives us just that. It paints for us a beautiful picture of who God is. And it does that because God's goal is to secure your trust. It's not in looking to yourself that your faith increases. It's in looking to God and looking to Christ that your faith is strengthened. And so what does this book tell you about God? It tells you that he's holy, that he is pure and perfect, that he is faultless, that there is no flaw in him. It tells you that he is sovereign, that he reigns and rules over everything in this world from one corner of it to the other, that he made it all and rules it all, including every bit of your life. It tells you that in his providence, he is caring for all of his creatures and all their actions. How? In a way that is holy, in a way that is wise, in a way that is powerful, in a way that is good. That he's always doing that. It tells you that that he's the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who provided sacrificial atonement for the sins of his people. It tells you that he's the God who is eternal, who had no beginning and who has no end. It tells you all of these things about God. It tells you that he's always protecting you and defending you. It tells you that he's ordering everything, everything for your good and for his glory. And it tells you that he cannot be stopped and that his purposes can in no way be hindered. And it tells you, believer in Christ, that his purposes for you are for your absolute, total, perfect redemption in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Do you want less than that? Often we do, don't we? But that is what God will do in your life. That is the picture of God that Numbers gives you, and all of this is guaranteed. Because Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was raised from the dead, now lives to intercede for his people, and is coming again in glory. How do you see Jesus pictured here at the end of Numbers? Well, this book ends with the second generation of Israelites on the plains of Moab. They are right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land, poised to enter. And as you read on through into the book of Joshua, you find they do go in under the command of Joshua, but there's something they don't do. God commanded them, we read this morning, to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, but they didn't. They didn't drive out all the inhabitants of the land, and so they never possessed all of the land. And so there's this lingering question. The unbelief that kept the first generation out of the land continues to plague God's people throughout their history. And there's this lingering question. After Joshua's death, the Israelites ask, who will go up for us? Who will fight the Canaanites? Who will drive the inhabitants of the land out? That's how the book of Judges begins. And that's the lingering question all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Who will deliver us? Who will conquer the enemies of God and of his people? Who will bring victory? Who will establish the kingdom of God? Who will finally settle us in God's place, under God's rule, that we may live under his blessing? Who will do it? Who will go up for us? As you know, many of you, the name Joshua is a Hebrew name that means deliverer. 
who, the question is, who is the deliverer? Who will do this? Who will fulfill completely and perfectly all the promises of God that the people have been waiting for all of these years? Moses wasn't enough. Joshua wasn't enough. David and the kings weren't enough. Who would be the great deliverer? Who would come as the great and last Joshua? And of course, these questions find their answer. They find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. The greater Joshua, who went up for us, up to the cross, where he bore our shame and our curse and the agony of death in our place, defeating sin and death, meeting the requirements of God's holiness with his perfect life, meeting the demands of God's justice with his sacrificial death. And so, as this greater Joshua, Jesus goes up for us, defeats our enemies, and enters in where? To the gates of heaven. Who is this king of glory, the psalm says? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, that the king of glory may come in. Jesus has entered into the presence of God. Why? For himself? For you. To bring you with him into the land, into the inheritance of God's people. He hasn't won his victory for himself. What he's done, he's done for you. And now by faith, we enter into that rest. We enter into what Israel was waiting for. So that as believers in Christ, we're already inhabitants of the promised land, citizens of heaven. But we're still waiting for what Marshall read to us this morning from Revelation 21, aren't we? I hope when you hear that read, I hope what that does for you is that it awakens your heart again. And you say, come Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And that you also say, Lord, give me grace to endure. Give me grace to persevere in this in-between Christian life, this pilgrim journey. So although we enjoy greater privileges than Israel did in the wilderness, we're also in a similar position, aren't we? And the book of Numbers, as we come to the end of this study, invites us to stand with the people of God on Jordan's stormy banks, on the verge of the promised land, as those bound for it, and in fact, as those who by Christ have already entered into it. Yes, we're a wilderness people. Yes, humanly speaking, as far as your eye can see, there's plenty to worry about, plenty to complain about, right? But Numbers is calling us to recognize that there is still a Sabbath rest that awaits the people of God. Jesus has gone in for you. He has brought you with him, and he will not leave you. It's hard to live by faith with the wilderness pressing around all around you, isn't it? Pressing in all around you. But Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, and he's coming again to take you with him so that you will be with him where he is. Does that give you hope? Does that strengthen you along the way? Well, what should we as the church of Jesus Christ take away from this study? I think four things I want to leave you with. Numbers remind you of your pilgrim identity. Numbers assures you of God's presence with you in Jesus Christ. 
Even right now this morning, through His Word and through the sacrament, through our worship, God is present with you. Numbers assures you of God's presence with you through Jesus Christ. Numbers, thirdly, shows you again and again and again both your need for His grace and the sure certainty of His grace. To you, a sinner, as you look to Christ day by day. And then I think Numbers, at the end of the day, leaves us with a charge. It leaves us with, a, with an invitation to faithful Christian discipleship. I want to use the words of, of the hymn, Jesus on my cross have taken, to capture that. Here's the charge, I think, that Numbers leaves us with. Haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall end thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ give us grace to lean into Him. As we pilgrim through this wilderness land, which often seems barren to us, but to lean into Him until that day when we, by the grace of God, behold our Savior face to face and pass from wilderness into glory. Do you believe that God will be faithful to that? May that be so in our lives. May we trust Him to do it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the gospel. We thank you for your covenant faithfulness, for your grace to sinners in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us in him a champion who has gone up for us to the cross and then into glory. And that he has brought us with him so that we have life hidden there with him. Life that can never be taken away and the assurance of your presence the assurance of your grace and mercy to us. And so, Lord, forgive us for the wanderings of our hearts. Forgive us for our doubt and unbelief. Forgive us for our selfish pride. Strip us of these things, we pray, Lord, each day. Continue in your love for us to tear away from us our, our foolish enterprises as we try to build our life on things that will not satisfy, that will not stand, and enable us simply to trust you, to obey you, to love you, to lean into you until that day that's coming. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to stand in the true grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.